Welcome to the second series of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. We're really excited to be back for a second season and to be able to continue to connect readers and writers in the Midlands and far beyond. You can download our podcast episodes from all the places you would normally get your podcasts every Thursday and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All of our festival events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. May 2021's online live event brought together two writers whose books are rooted in the Midlands, Emma Persaus and Lisa Blower. In conversation with author Kit Duval, they discuss their latest novels, Dogged and Pondweed, making space for more working class writers and characters in contemporary fiction and capturing a variety of Midlands dialects on the page. everyone. It's my pleasure this evening to introduce you to two friends and two great writers, two great women, who both have books out. These two books, which we're going to hear a lot about this evening, as well as more generally talking about accents, dialect and snobbery literature, which obviously is one of my pet subjects. Just to introduce who we're talking about this evening, first of all, we've got Lisa Blower. Lisa is the author of the short story collection, It's Gone Dark Over Bill's Mothers, which came out in 2019, and a contributor to Common People, which was the anthology of working class writing that came out the same year. Her fiction has appeared in The Guardian, Common Press Anthologies, New Wealth Review, Luminary, Short Story Sunday on Radio 4. Her debut novel, Sitting Docks, was shortlisted for the inaugural Arnold Bennett Prize and long-listed for The Guardian, not the Booker Prize. She's also a senior lecturer in creative writing at Wolverhampton University. And Emma Pursehouse left school in the early 1980s at the age of 15. She's got an MA in creative writing from Manchester Met. Her passion is writing about working-class communities, communities she's lived in, often making the use of black country dialect within her work. In 2017, she won the International Making Wave Spoken Word Poetry Competition. She's also Poet Laureate for the City of Wolverhampton. And she's also one of the writers in Common People, the anthology of working class writing. And she teaches poetry in schools and community groups. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello. So we've all got the short vowels tonight, which I'm very happy about. It's great to speak to you. And to speak to you about two very, very funny books, first of all. And it's such a comfort to read these books because it's about worlds that are so familiar to, to many of us. Emma, I just want to talk to you first about Dogged. And I don't believe I've ever read a book before that revolves around a win on the bingo, which I love. I mean, it's just so fantastic to read. In fact, you tell us, what is the book about and who are the main characters? like you say it's sort of about a bingo win initially and the two main characters are women in their late 70s you've got Nancy Maddox and you've got Marilyn Grundy and it's Marilyn who's had this bingo win but nobody's quite sure how much it's for and uh, really the idea behind the book is about how Marilyn has to protect the bingo winnings and then kind of Nancy gets enlisted into this and it's the adventures they have as they try to protect um, the bingo winnings, which are stashed in a tartan shopping trolley. <laughs> That's great. 
And so not only have you rooted it very much in, as in working class, but you've rooted it in an area. You know, you've rooted it in the black country. How does the black country feature in this story and more generally in your work? I think in this story, it's where it's set, but they're ingrained in the landscape. Everything's kind of can't have one thing without the other. And when the dialect comes in, it's as much a part of it as the characters in the landscape. They say, write what you know, and it's what I know. So that's that's why I've set it there. In my poetry, again, it's what I'm living in. So I kind of want to respond and show people what it is and talk about it and share it because I love it here. I mean, I think that does come through both of these books, a massive sense of pride in no apology about who we are and where we're from. There's a real sense of pride in this. Do you want to just read us a bit, Emma? I'll read the prologue, which kind of introduces the two women, really. Nancy stands on the step. Her shoulders have been aching all night. Years of scrubbing quarry tiles up at the Dartmouth are taking their towel. She rolls her shoulders forward and twists her head to peer over towards her back. A lump has started to form under her overall. What now? If it ain't one thing, it's somewhat else. And as she watches, the lump starts to bulge, move, rupture the skin. She hears Mr Maddox's voice. If God had meant us to fly, He'd have given us wings. Voice is punctuated by the sound of a trickle of whiskey being poured into a glass. The emerging wing, just the one, unfurls itself in a grand gesture, then flails against her back. It's large and black, oily, tarry, nicotine stained, and the feathers are stuck together. It hangs like Wet washing in a backyard on a windless day. Sort of bust, Nancy thinks. Marilyn appears on the step opposite and waves. Nancy tries to wave back without showing her new wing. Is that? says Marilyn, screwing up her orange lips into the shape of a cat's arse. No, says Nancy, putting her off in mid-question. It I. Conversation is ended. Bloody dreaming again, thinks Nancy as she awakes. Oh, that's great. That's so good. It's absolutely great. Thanks, Emma. I mean, it just sets the scene so, so wonderfully. That image of wet washing on a windless day. Fantastic. Loved it. And Lisa. Hello. Over to you. So your book spans 11 days and a couple of hundred miles from Stoke to Wales. And I know that you said that if you had a pound for every time you'd driven the Pondweed journey, you'd be a millionaire. Tell us something about the genesis of this book and why you wrote it or how you came to write it. Well, it begins with family legend. We all have them, don't we? We've all got those stories in our families. Um, And it's based on the fact that my great granny Gladys was, she was standing at the bus stop in Wem, which is this little town, little village just outside of Shrewsbury, gets talking to this elderly gentleman. And as they get talking, they realise who each other is. 
And it turns out that they were each other's first childhood sweethearts. And she thought she'd lost him to the First World War. But he was actually back in Wem. He was living back in Wem. And he was quite a poorly man at that time. And they became friends. And she, and in the end, he said to her, he says, you know, Gladys, I think I'm going to need someone to help me. And she said, my granny Gladys had always worked in service. So she said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll move in with you. I'll be a housekeeper. I mean, she was 84. And uh, so she moves in with him. And because they didn't want folk talking, they got married. <laughs> Honestly, and I just think this story is so lovely. And it's always been one of those stories that I've thought, I've got to somehow write about this. And I think what I always tend to do when I write is that I kind of, you know, like you, Emma, I write a little bit what I know, but I always imagine it as otherwise. And I started thinking about that and I started thinking about all those journeys that we used to make when we lived in Stoke. Um, But it's also that idea of that you don't really go anywhere. I mean, how I grew up, the people in Stoke didn't really go anywhere. Um, You know, I mean, when we kind of emigrated to Shrewsbury, as Manan said, we always had people in Stoke would say, oh, we'll come when it's warmer. You know, as if (laughs) Shrewsbury had no central heating. You know, and it's that idea of these roads less less travelled by people, you know, this idea that they, they're not really going anywhere, but then they're coming back to where they started, which is exactly what happened with Charlie and my granny Gladys. And at the time when I started to think about this story as well, I was commuting from Shrewsbury to Bangor, where I used to work. So I was going along the A55, following a lot of characters. Uh, lots of pimped up caravans and there'd always be this you know like retired couple in the front and I started to think well where are you all going you know and this idea that everybody's looking for something or going on a destination you know looking for this destination this ultimate destination uh, which I suppose in a way retirement is <laughs> and so began the novel. It's so interesting and it's, it's interesting how those seeds very often for all of us writers those seeds of a story turn into something. It's like you use it and you plant it and this this grows. Can you read us a bit from the book? Yes, of course I can. Of course, I'm going to read from the start and I'm going to begin with how my version of Charlie and Gladys, Ginny and Selwyn, how they first met. We all whimper at the faint whiff of romance, yet it's such a grub. I met Selwyn Robin in the Guardian Centre. Almost 50 years had lumbered by since we'd parted ways, and then he was right there in the aquatics franchise selling garden ponds. I heard him before I saw him. He was talking intently to a couple about pond liners as if they might repair a doomed marriage. The most durable in the world with a lifetime guarantee, he was saying, and there it still was. That Welsh border's accent with its fat and thick vowels that used to soothe my mother like a dose of laudanum. And no doubt doing that thing he used to do where he pinches his nostrils together and sniffs. This is top quality Swedish brittle rubber, 100% watertight, even in swell. For the size they wanted, because you must consider the edging excess for the expansion during Waterfill, this particular liner was going to set them back 85.99 a square metre. And this was apparently without underlay, which was going to cost them another 50 quid. The couple looked as if they were having to share their lottery win with a family they despised. This was a little out of budget for them, they said. They were only in a retirement new build with a lawn the size of a postage stamp. Not that this mattered to Selwyn and he pattered on. Told them that Swedish butthole rubber comes with its own ecosystem, assuring an ecological balance that would filter rainwater and siphon off the right nutrients. 
It's the effect of a million tiny teeth chewing on algae, he said solemnly. On my mother's grave, you will never find a suffocated fish if you line with this beautiful tart. Impatience had got the better of me. I'm the same with sweets. I'm a cruncher, not a sucker. And I'd inch myself forward to see who he'd become. Yes, I thought. It could only be you. You from next door who'd count my hiccups through the wall. And me, just 16 then, and ripe as a bowl of apples. Now, happening upon one another then. And it was just as we were, as if time hadn't passed and he still took three sugars in his tea. Though I could tell straight away that the world had pushed him to one side as it had with me as it does with those of us born on our bones and his left hand then smoothing down his hair at the back before placing it on the man's shoulder and wondering he said if you've been considering a submersible or external surface model the man looked at Selwyn as if his affair with a submersible model had just been exposed and his wife clamped her hand over her mouth and gasped. There's so much to think about, she exclaimed. It's like a whole new world. Selwyn led the distressed couple to the pond pumps where he got them to cradle each one as if choosing a newborn. And he doesn't know about her, I kept thinking to myself. I'm going to have to explain, show him a photograph and hope he won't mind. Understand, I shall have to ask. Please, you must understand. I watched the couple spend over 500 quid at the till without buying a single fish. He won't understand. He will never understand. Except that's when he caught sight of me, and not a bit of me, but all five foot nine of me. Just another one of those women who's standing behind you in the supermarket queue and dressed as if applying for a job in a department store that will let me down gently. You couldn't have counted a blink between us as he swam up to me. A musty aftershave laced with military precision and that smile. God, I remember that smile. I thought only freshwater habitats could bring that sort of smile to the hoover parts of Selwyn Robbie's leathered face. Flagellating moss on the manhole, a soft-boiled egg. You remember me, I said, which wasn't the thing I'd wanted to say, having had so much to say over the years and thinking about this moment, should it ever happen, and practicing what I would say, which would not have been, it's been so long, I thought you'd have forgotten me. He dropped down on one knee and said, marry me. Oh, God, that's great. That's fantastic. What a voice for that character. I mean, really, really located. Oh, thank you. (laughs) In that place, you know, that's a very particular person. And I know that in... In sitting docks, for example, so wedded into the fabric of Stoke, and it's gone dark over Bill's mother's. Yeah. Tell us what uh, your region of the Midlands means to you, and how it informs your writing. Well, I think, like any writer, it didn't necessarily. I didn't really think about it at the time. You know, when I first started out, um, and and then the more I've kind of written about it, the more I've realised that nobody else really writes about Stoke and nobody has done since Arnold Bennett and you know and he couldn't wait to get out of there he wrote most of his literature from London looking back which I suppose in a way that's what I'm kind of doing but it's what I mean it's a for those of you you know you know it's a place of six towns uh so it's kind of exists with no centre you know it's that kind of decentered city and so it has this almost like placelessness about it even though you've got these six towns with very separate identities, loyalties, traditions, histories, 
And I always kind of think about it that to the outsider, those six towns probably look one and the same, but actually to the insider, all very, very different. And, you know, obviously years ago, they were all kind of circumscribed by the the pot banks that, that were working there at the time. So they all kind of are enmeshed with their own geography. And also that sense of conflict, <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean, has always existed. I don't know whether you have that. Do you have that as much in Wolverhampton M where you have parts of Wolverhampton that are kind of in conflict with each other? Certainly, I think the black country is similar as a whole with those little kind of centres that are famous yeah. for different things. So a little bit, so they're very, people lump it all together. Mm. Different bits are so different even within a few miles. So yeah. I think you've got that as well, yeah. I can remember saying to someone, oh, you know, you're from Tipton, aren't you? And he said, I'm not from Tipton, I'm from Langley. And you were just yeah. like, they're so close. It just isn't it. You know, they're so different in their identity. It is. And I think, you know, having read Dogged and, and your work as well, Kit, I think what I think what we're all trying to do is is write less with what I would call that kind of Orwellian tourist lens. Do you know yeah. what I mean? That's always rushing past, which you know, invariably, most people do buy a Stoke contract. They're always rushing past on the M6 to either get to Manchester or Birmingham. And I think the other thing with Stoke is that it almost is too south for the north, but it's too north for the Midlands. Yeah. So it's got all this kind of disharmony about it, but such this rich tapestry that is very much embedded with its people. And I think that's where I write, you know, that's where my stories are at the heart. It's about the people. Yes, absolutely. It's, it, I mean, both of your books are so strong and such strong women in it and older women you know yeah. not, not the you know the frilly fluffy sense uh, t- side of the of your life but that sense where you really are your own person you're a strong woman you haven't let go of your loves and desires and it's that time where you're going to drive on through and both of your the accents and the phraseology, I suppose, is so strong in, in both of those books. But, you know, here we are, three different Midlands accents, completely different. How important is it for you to use that in your writing? I mean, did either of you think about not having any sense of dialect and any sense of accent in your writing? For me, as I say, I don't think I ever really thought that I was writing in an accent. You know, I was, you know, my kind of motivation or my intention has always been to write these stories that, you know, that you so you can hear the voices as I hear them as authentically as possible. So I've never really been mindful of what that dialect is. It's only when somebody else re- reads it and they almost kind of look at it and then they start looking at things, particularly from a tense point of view, because in the potteries, no one talks in the present tense. They always almost talk as if it's everything's happened in the past. Do you know what I mean? And they also make up words. You know, if they can't think of words, they just make it up. I mean, talk about portmanteaus. <laughs> you know, Stoke-on-Trent is full of them and it's wonderful. And it's gone dark over Bill's mothers, you know, all these wonderful phrases. That's what defines the people. And so because I hear the voices, you know, as I always say, hear the voices first. I hear them in dialogue with somebody else I hear them in conversation so I write that down and then that allows me to attach it to a body which then puts that body in a place so before I know it I've actually got that pottery's voice yes. um 
without really thinking about it. It's a very organic process, I suppose. Because there's different ways, aren't there, of rendering an accent in a book. You can do it phonetically very much as you have done, Emma, actually changing the word structure, or you can do it through the sentence structure and the vocabulary, like you just said, some made-up words. You know, Irving Welsh does that, doesn't he, in Train Spotting and lots and lots of other people do. But Emma, you chose Nancy mostly to have the person in your book who you render in dialect in a in a very sort of you know phonetic way. Yeah. Why did you choose her? She's a character that keeps recurring in my work. She's a she's appeared in poems as well. And like Lisa was just saying, she talks in my head <laughs> like that. So to render it in that way means that somebody could pick it up and and also try and you know, when they're reading it, speak in that manner and get get under it and understand how it works. I was also brought up reading lots of black country comedy poetry and things like that, and that's rendered in that way. So to me, it wasn't particularly an odd thing to do. It's just the way that things when I was little reading stuff was done when it was dealing with dialect and accent. So it really, that was that was why I did it like that, so that somebody could pick it up and have a go at it, really, I suppose. Right, and it's so funny. I think that comedy of the black country, there is nothing like it. It's so rich and it's so sharp. You know, it's absolutely pin sharp. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly you sort of, you laugh about it 10 minutes later when you just, you know, dwell on it. How do you approach teaching this, Lisa? So if your students say, I want to do this, and do you say there's any danger in it? Or how do you, how do you approach dialect and accent? Well, the, the first piece of advice I always give them is don't shy away from it. Don't be afraid of writing in the voice you were born with, I suppose, more than anything, you know, which I know sounds quite profound. But, you know, you can't write about particular places without representing it through voice. And it's no good having somebody who is born and bred in Stoke-on-Trent that speaks very PC because that is just not the case. So I do encourage them wholeheartedly to you know write it as they can hear it you know practice it hear it spell it spell it as you you know as you would hear it play with those phonemes because what that then allows them to do is to play with that kind of rhythm of language with the intonation with that tone of voice so we don't need those qualifying adverbs in the dialogue he said shiftily she said she scoffed you know because if when you're writing in accent and dialect it's doing the job for you. One of the other things I'm very encouraging of is to pick up on that humour, that very self-deprecating humour, which I think circumscribes the whole of the West Midlands, doesn't it? It's one of those things that we all use as a as that public mask, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> but for a lot of things. Yeah, and, and you you hear of, I know I went to a penguin thing, a penguin do in, yeah. in London once. And I was speaking to this girl and I was, said something about Birmingham, she said, oh, I'm from Nuneaton. I thought, saying, you're not. You know, that is not an Nuneaton accent, look. Yeah. I mean, there's Nuneaton and there's Nuneaton countryside, I suppose. Yeah. But I can remember <laughs> thinking either you've got rid of it, as many of yeah. us do and many people do to get on, yeah. or, you know, you're from a sort of gentrified area of Nuneaton, but it, well, there was no Nuneaton there, which yeah. brings me neatly onto snobbery in publishing. So... Do you think there is a place in the publishing world for this? I know I, I read a lot around it, you know, coming up with this interview and so many people who, who have been 
cancelled out of it by editors and publishers like don't do that because people don't like it people won't read it do you have you come across that do you think there is that issue in the publishing world I often look at it from the point of view that if you look at Scottish, Welsh, Irish literature, they are incredibly kind, aren't they, to their part, to their accents, to their dialects. It's almost part and parcel. I mean, look at train spotting, look at what a success yes. it was. But you start to use the many dialects, you know, those multiple dialects that we have across England, you know, for want of a better phrase with it. And rather than celebrating it, it's almost seen as a challenge. You know, don't challenge the reader too much. If the reader can't understand it, then they're going to put the book down. And I don't think that is the case at all, because I think train spotting proved that. I'm halfway through Shuggy Bane at the yes, minute, yes, and it's yes, doing yes. exactly that same thing. So, you know, I think I've been asked a lot to tone things down. I'm, uh, I've, but I've kind of gone through that treadmill now. Uh, probably become quite belligerent about it, and thought, no, this is about the story. This is the politics of place, and it needs to be written like that. Um, but you can still get into those arguments. Uh, you know, as you were talking previously when we were having a preamble before about mom, you know, yes, rather yes. than mum. And it's exactly that same thing when you put things in an apotteries accent. People will pick up and say, well, that should be in the, in the present tense. And I'm saying, well, no, that's not how it would be said. So well, I'm all for trying to get that authenticity. But there is still that barrier, isn't there? That totally, yeah, by the gatekeepers who, let's be honest, perceive that they don't have an accent. Of course they have an accent. You know, we see RP is an accent. Yeah. Emma, is it any different? And I mean, I know it, it must be different in spoken word because so much of spoken word isn't supposed to be read. It's supposed to be listened to. It's supposed to be performed. So do you find there less snobbery, less exclusion around the spoken word? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, you're on a stage, they get what they get. And usually people are like really responsive and interested. And I've always found wherever I've gone in the country, I've gone up as far as north as Orkney and done black country stuff. And people get it. They're interested. Sometimes they might just like the sound of it and then they'll come up and talk to you about it. But there is an interesting dialect accent. But in publishing, it seems that there is that snobbery. And I know from my own experience, I had a chance to hit having got shortlisted for the Miss Lecture or Published Novel Prize a few years ago. And I was talking to people and it was I didn't enjoy the event at all. I found it really like out of my comfort zone. But afterwards, I did get a chance to send some stuff to people, and they were all saying, "No, you need to lose the dialect. You need to lose the accent stuff. Forget it." And that kind of put me off really for a bit. I mean, I carried on writing my own thing, but I just thought, well, it ain't going to yeah. get out as a novel, which is kind of why I do more spoken word, really. Yes, I mean, you do get more freedom there, don't you? But I suppose one of the other issues is that whenever you speak about writing in dialect, writing in accents, it's immediately equated with being working class. Literally. Mm. It's only working mm. class people that are going to attempt that. It obviously isn't true because I, I know that uh, Hardy wrote when he was writing about Dorset, he, he often had, I mean, they were working class people, but mm. he was writing, you know, in dialect for mm. a lot of people. And so do you think we come on, you know, do we come under pressure as working class writers to sort of forced into, into that and people feeling, oh, it's not authentic because we're not speaking in dialect? 
My argument with it, I think, more than anything, is that I think class and voice and that sense of identity that comes with how we speak, I suppose, and how, you know, is how we present ourselves, how we react to situations, and when we're doing it through characters as well. All that slang, those colloquialisms, uh, I think, is, is it scars that they also call it as well? It's all coming back to that sense of authenticity, isn't it? But at the same time, it is a kind of poetry that the people are speaking. Yes. Do, yes. do you know what I mean? And that necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily a class thing. It's part of the region. That's what I'm saying. It's like that politics of place. But I suppose in a way, because a lot of slang in particular and a lot of, di you know, dialects, uh, very specifically, particularly in the potteries, because it was shouted across a very noisy factory floor. It's associated with the people that work there, which yeah. makes it a class issue. But, you know, some of the broadest potters that I know are perhaps not working class. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I, su I suppose that's where that snobbery comes in, that because somebody speaks in a dialect, it's almost like part of that marginalisation and yeah. therefore other kind of pigeonholing starts to come into the mix. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and you think, and then it's that, darker underbelly of the class system that publishing then expects rather than what we're actually celebrating which is place and people and, and good storytelling absolutely and it would be really nice wouldn't it if just occasionally we had a middle class or upper class accent rendered phonetically like I, I was I was talking about my husband who's very upper middle class who used to talk about going into the room the room. Yeah, the room. <laughs> and I used to say to him, that's double O. There's a double O in room. And yet he had made it, because yeah. it was so pot, he would say the rum, which yeah. to me is yeah. like you know, rum and coke, Bacardi rum. And we yeah. used to, I used to always, always comment on it because he doesn't speak. You know, he has got an accent and that, you know, if you're going to talk about rendering accents, that's an yeah. accent to render. There is an accent there. It's not mm. only work past people that have accents. One of the things I did when I was knowing that I was doing this is I put out a call on Twitter for people. I said, tell me about what you think about accents and dialects in literature. And one of the interesting ones I had was somebody who spoke about Natasha Carthew uh, talking about oh, yeah. writing in West Country dialect in her book, All Rivers Run Free. And this person said, it makes it deeply moving to me because it cannot be fake. And there's yeah. such a sweet relief to hearing my people on the page. Mm. And I, I think yeah. that's what it is for all of us, isn't it? You, you get yeah. that connection. You know, yeah. I know that when I hear a Brummie accent, I very rarely see that a Brummie accent rendered on the page. But if I'm anywhere physically and I hear a Brummie accent, you know, you sort of turn around and go, oh, because it's yeah. that sort of connection that you have. Do you, do you find that, Emma, if you go somewhere and you hear on the airwaves or someone in a restaurant talking, do you sort of immediately have that connection with them? Yeah, if, if you hear a bit of a bit of black country when you're out of place, zoom right in on it, don't you? It's like, Ooh. yeah, because it's your tribe. Absolutely, it is your tribe. Mm. That's what's lovely about it. And yeah. we've already covered, somebody else had mentioned mom, where somebody, had, you know, the proofreader had said to them, take the mom out because, it, you know, it's supposed to be M-U-M. And Liz Berry, who mm. writes so much in dialect, she says, I think when the writer knows the voice deep in their bones and has a respect for it, 
then it can make the writing feel beautifully vivid and alive. I'm thinking mm. of the wonderful poems of Kathleen Jamie, Malika Booker, Katrina Porteous, and Kai Miller. Do you know any of that work, Lisa? Yeah. Do you have yeah. that kind of sense? Oh, yes, I do. And I, I, I mean, I suppose in a way this is, it comes back to what I was once told that, you know, accent and dialect was far more palatable in a, in a work of short fiction than it was for a whole novel. And kind of, you know, occasionally having that in the back of my mind, you know, when I am writing. But then it's the same, but with a, po a work of poetry, because you're playing with language, because you're playing yes, with yes. rhythm and syntax and those kind of lexical organisations, it's almost a, something that's much more acceptable. But to put it in a work of prose where the reader is not necessarily looking at that accent or that dialect use for the image that it represents, it's part of a voice, it's part of a character, it's part of a place. For some reason, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> it just seems to make it a little bit more of a challenge or that level of interpretation yes. is required. Whereas in a poem, you know, as you were kind of saying, Emma, with about you, when you're performing it, you have that wonderful poem about people with allotments giving you courgettes. And this, the, the reason that poem works so brilliantly is because you deliver it as well in a black country accent. Do you know what I mean? It just has that humour. It lifts it. It gives it that different dimension. So, yeah, that's what I, you know, I'm, I'm, as I say, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to use. Right. And, and Frank Popshaw Boyce mentions Liz Berry's, uh, he calls it wondrous and beautiful yeah. phrase, wench, you the colour of our town. And I can remember the first time I, hit, I heard Liz Berry read a poem, and I'd never, I'd never heard anyone read in a black country accent before. And I, I mean, just because you've got more vowels, you know, if you break yeah. down a word, you get not more vowels, more consonants, you know, more beats on the word. And so you really can play with it to make it so beautiful. But mm. I think for a lot of us, it's drilled out of us at school that this is allowed. It's not allowed. To, you know, that there is a way of pronouncing things and there's a way of not to pronounce things. Did, did you have any of this sort of smacked out of you at school, either of you? Well, I did because I spent the first half of my childhood in Stoke on Trent and then, as I say, we emigrated to Shrewsbury um, and had certain instances where, you know, mums used to tell kids to stay away from me and my sister because they thought we were scousers. And <laughs> but, you know, sorry to any Liverpoolians. But I mean, it is that thing, isn't it? When you kind of move to somewhere else and, uh, you know, people can hear you dropping your vowels or, <laughs> you know, not being as PC or using words that people on, aren't familiar with. I always remember my mum saying something to a friend of mine or what you're firking in the bin for. And they looked at as if she, you know, sworn at them, <laughs> you know, and it's so it is that different you know and you do I think as you go through school the education system starts to kind of discourage it don't they a little yes, bit yes. and and I suppose as well is that they're not reading anything on the curriculum that actually represents the language that they speak you know I mean if you look at the curriculum now it's yes, well that's yes. a completely different conversation but I mean do you know what I mean it's not yes. representing multiple voices certainly not in those kind of contexts. It's a shame that it doesn't when I do stuff like in community venues I was working with um, a girl, she, I think she was dyslexic, she could, she could barely write. I was trying to get her to do some poetry and I played a bit of Liz Berry to her and her, her face just went, <laughs> she's speaking like me and they've made a film of her. And I'm going, yeah, 
and then she started writing because she didn't uh, bother how it, did it how it sounded and it, it I think it's important I think it should be on the flipping curriculum absolutely you know? it should and, and the whole in fact I'm going to read I was going to save it to the end but it fits in so well here James Kalman said my culture and my language have the right to exist mm-hmm. and no one has the authority to dismiss that and it's very much about respect isn't it for people's experiences and for the richness of people's experience and the richness of richness of a culture because it is a culture it is you know it's a culture and it's a language and you know Mm -hmm. you mentioned before Lisa that Scotland and Ireland do it so bloody well why Mm -hmm. why do they do it so well and why are they sort of I don't mean allowed to but how is it that that's acceptable and then you come down to England or you come across to England and it's not acceptable all of a sudden. And yet I know that, the, you know, some people have spoken about when you're writing in an accent phonetically, you're spelling words phonetically, that it can detract. Too much of it, people say, can detract from the story. Mm. So that you're spending your time working out what people are saying and it's pulling you out of the narrative, it's pulling you out of the plot. Yeah. And someone on Twitter said, writing accents is walking a tightrope between authenticity and accessibility. Yeah. What do you think about that, walking that tightrope? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like what I've said, but, you know, it's you know, kind of said before about it, isn't it? It's, you know, don't challenge your reader too much, I suppose, because they want to still be engaged. And as soon as they start feeling that they've got to work hard yes, to yes. understand it, you know, as you say, it's this kind of distraction and this detractor when actually it's at the heart of the story. It's the heart of the characters. But yes, you're absolutely right. And I think the way that I manage it is that I will include it in the dialogue. Or if I'm working in a first person like I am with Conduit, I can use it almost anecdotally. You know, do you know what I mean? In the way that Ginny story tells because that's what she's doing she's storytelling all the time she's kind of going over her past in that kind of ontology kind of way in order to move forward but then using other parts of that narrative body where that accent isn't as prevalent but is very much shifting it's about shifting plot shaping story so I know that I can still maintain that reader engagement so I am very, very aware of its pitfalls. And I think I'm aware of them because, through trial and error and having, you know, a lot of knockbacks from publishers as well because of it. So learning to walk that tightrope, but yeah. at the same time, you know, still being very flat footed on that tightrope as well. Yeah. I think for me on that, um, I was like having Nancy really broad, but like the third, the third person inspiration. Mm. It comes into it because it's me writing it, but like it's not, it's not over the top on that. And then the younger characters aren't as broad, but I was trying to represent our language and dialect changes and shifts anyway. So I was doing a lot of messing about with that, thinking about how people sounded from different generations. So I think the broader bits, you probably, it's not the whole novel that's that. So I think that's how I walked the toy trope on it, really. And on that, point i think we have to leave it there but i'd just like to say such a great conversation i never get tired of hearing <laughs> you two speak reading your work and most importantly authentic voices i think may we have many many more of them and if i hope this session 
has inspired anyone that's listening who's thinking about writing in dialect to have a go and to be true to who they are and, and absolutely their work. Emma, anything else you'd like to say to your many fans that are here? <laughs> Not really. Thanks very much for coming along and listening. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Lisa, yeah. any final words? As they say in Stoke, Tarduck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, keep Tarduck and Tra, Tra. Tra, Tra, absolutely. That's a, that's a very brummy thing. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody that's come along this evening. And thank you, everybody that's uh, sent us a, a question. And we hope we've answered the questions and given everybody something to think about and also something to celebrate. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Press Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review or a rating and find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcast and find transcripts of our episodes in the show notes. The Birmingham Lit Press Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.